This is Digital Pathology Today. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. We're talking about what it takes to go digital in a large group practice. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest is Dr. Corey Roberts, a pathologist with over 20 years experience in healthcare, ranging from academic medicine to specialty private practice, and currently leading the largest 100% physician-owned pathology and laboratory medicine diagnostic practice in the country. He is president, chairman, and CEO of ProPath. He's going to share with us the ProPath experience in going digital. What were the lessons learned? What was the business case for digital pathology? There's clearly many use cases and advantages, but what will move the needle ultimately in putting digital pathology into practice? We're also going to talk about industry forces and consolidation in the laboratory business and what the future is going to look like. This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by JAV Advisors. With over 16 years experience, JAV Advisors focuses on business and management consulting for digital pathology and artificial intelligence in deployment within histology, pathology, and cytology laboratories throughout the world. Call 213-258-6268. For more information, JAV Advisors. Dr. Corey Roberts, thank you so much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. We're here talking about your experience in going digital. You're head of a pathology group called ProPath. So tell us a little bit about your career in pathology and maybe the story of ProPath. Sure. Yeah, I'm a pathologist originally from Nebraska. Found myself in Dallas the past 20 years with ProPath. ProPath really drew me down here by the nature of the practice. I had been in academics after finishing my training up in Nebraska doing GI and liver pathology and then decided to come down and join the group after talking to them. And ProPath is a little bit unique as far as pathology practices go in that uh, we are a very large practice, 50 doctors now. I'm about 30 when I joined and over 500 employees, but entirely physician-owned. So we're entirely privately held, uh, no outside equity partners outside of the doctor owners. Based in Dallas, really started even back in 1966, believe it or not, with the regular pathology bases in hospitals. But as happened with a lot of different practices and specialties, a group of doctors joined with another group of doctors and kind of kept growing in that way for obvious reasons to share infrastructure costs and things. In 2000, in the late 90s and 2000, we really started focusing on subspecialty anatomic reads, subspecialty biopsy reads as our as sort of our corner on the market and uh, really making the argument we were good at that and, and you'd have really appropriate, well-trained doctors reading the biopsies. So from that time, we really started focusing more on the outpatient side of things. Five or six years later, decided to go outside of Texas and start selling actively outside of Texas and other states where we had some uh, reason to be there, some connections to the area, and steadily grown since that time, such that now we find ourselves with our headquarters in Dallas and a big, big lab, 85,000 square foot facility with anatomic pathology, histology, clinical pathology with a high throughput blood work lab now. We have flow cytometry, cytogenetics, the largest fish menu that we know of with over 100 fish probes, molecular sort of everything you need in one stop. And we service clients all around Texas, have a sales team that covers all of Texas. And that's about 75% of our work. The other quarter of our work comes from 
almost every corner of the United States, with Georgia being our second biggest market and places like New York and and, uh, Pennsylvania, rather, and Arizona following in line to make up the rest of the work. And we have employees in about 12 states. We have a um, what we term a logistics hub, couriers and phlebotomists that occupy a space in Houston, another one in Atlanta. And then just before the pandemic, believe it or not, we completed an acquisition of a dermatopathology group, New England tissue issue up in Fall River, Massachusetts. So we have a couple more doctors and a a lab uh, and a team of folks there as well. So we plan to continue expanding from just our organic growth, which has been aggressive, 10% a year to uh, add the acquisition arm as well. Okay, that, that's very impressive and very exciting. It sounds like your future is is going to be even brighter. So, I think you know, I think a lot of people are going to be interested in in hearing your story. So, you know, we're here talking about digital pathology, and kind of when you were going over that, it also made me reflect on just the various differences in the settings that pathologists practice in. And so, you have a completely physician-owned practice, and so it sounds like you know you maybe have a little bit more latitude in putting pathologists in the driver's seat or maybe even being a little more pathologist-centric. So how did, so maybe just tell us a little bit about your experience in going digital. When did, when did the thought first occur to you? Because I mean, certainly it's been with us for 20 years or more, right? We've been aware of the ability to take pictures and finally achieve whole slide imaging and so on. And then it was just a matter of time before practices went digital, but it's a very big leap. You know, it requires a very large infrastructure investment and so forth. So kind of maybe walk us through your journey. When did you first get the idea and then what were the steps along the way to finally making it a reality? Yeah, sure. I, I totally agree with all that you said. If you, uh, I'll just say as a joke, uh, back in the late 90s, I thought I was pretty cool stuff because I had a Nikon Coolpix camera attached to my microscope so I could take digital still images uh, in my microscope, and I was pretty cutting edge at the time. <laughs> and I'm not a technical guy, really, I am not. But uh, we've had our eye on it for a long time, and that, that cool pick story aside, for I would say the last five to eight years, we've really we've talked to folks, we've had folks in, we've debated about entering the, the field. And really, just the, the obvious qu- questions you raised, the capital-intensive nature of doing it, what will be the real benefit, how will we get that back? And I think for a group like ProPath, again, while we're big, we are just a medical practice. We're a private practice, just like a four-person group or an eight-person group or whatever, just on the bigger side. So for us, it is our money. It is our capital. It's going to go into that. We want to see a return on that. There's no magic tax base that's going to support us. There's no uh, dean's tax that'll kick in. There's nothing else but us. So it's a big decision. Frankly, we're perfectly suited for digital pathology because As I mentioned with all those doctors, we have doctors sitting in hospitals all around North Texas. We support about 26 hospitals in addition to this outpatient market. So right now we make slides in our lab about, we process about 2,400 tissue blocks every day, believe it or not. And and we take those slides and then we run them out with our couriers to people in different locations. And that might be hospital work done by that hospital that we do the technical production of. But in addition, it's outpatient work that we are just sort of level setting and trying to even the workload for a number of doctors. And so we might send some to a doctor that has a little capacity in a hospital. So we're perfectly suited in that description for digital pathology. And and we knew that. But frankly, we were not convinced that it was going to make sense for us. We wanted to be an early adopter, but not, you know, not an alpha or even a beta site for that matter. So we got really serious about it in in, uh, early 2019. And and I really felt like 
the time was now for us that uh, we needed to t- make the leap. And for me to be able to get my money back, I needed to make my doctors more efficient, make our process more efficient. So we've started looking at it in 2019, talked to a lot of vendors, had them in and out, had demos, and then made our purchase of the equipment right at the close of the year of 2019, got it on site in early 20, and uh, frankly took advantage of the downtime and volumes during the early parts of the pandemic to spend a lot of time getting it validated and implemented for the cases that we were looking at. Okay. Yeah, I think the the pandemic, I think, kind of gave us a shot in the arm, so to speak. You know, regulatory barriers came down. The ability to sign out from remote locations got easier. So did any of that kind of help you along in a nice, unexpected way? You know, we never took advantage of having folks stay home. We uh, kept our facility open. We certainly took a lot of precautions, and our doctors were all barricaded in offices, not literally, but are able to stay behind closed doors. We stopped deliveries to them. So um, we were able to keep people really safe and did a good job on that front. So we didn't feel like that was a need. But what I did have was I had excess human uh, capital during that time where our volumes went way down. So I had a bunch of smart doctors that could spend some time really look at the implementation and the validation which would have had to been added on to their already busy workload. So that's really where we got uh, the benefit from the pandemic to accelerate our process. Okay, so it kind of freed up some bandwidth of you know these these smart doctors. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's that's great. Now, is there any lessons that you learned? Anything you thought, hey, oh geez, I wish I would have known this, you know, before we started doing this, or oh gee, this is even better than I thought it was going to be. Is there anything unexpected that you learned, or any mistakes or lessons you learned? Yeah, you know, I think things don't ever go quite as smoothly as you want. I think interfaces and the IT component take more testing and longer than, than you want or expect. And, and frankly, we do lots of client interfaces, so we're, we're rel- very well used to that. We have an excellent IT team, so there's no, it's no knock on them, but that's just the reality of it. So we, we learned that. We worked through that. And frankly, there's a lesson right now that we're, that's evolving for us, and that is how will that workflow look for primary reads? And we've just completed our interface between our LIS and our um, chosen scanner. And I will be deciding whether we think that's adequate, that workflow, or we'll want to place another layer of software in between to create a you know, pathologist cockpit, if you will, just to make things even more efficient. So that that story remains to unfold, but we're looking at that now as well. Okay, that, that's an interesting point. And you mentioned you have a varied practice setting. You're servicing probably outpatient clinics, you know, hospitals, surgery centers, and, you know, a lot of what we do, obviously we make the diagnosis, but then a key piece that may be overlooked by someone who's not in the trenches is how do we get those results to our customers, which are, you know, the doctors performing those biopsies, taking care of patients. So how is that working, right? The infrastructure to, you know, because I would imagine different clients, different clinics want their results in different ways. I mean, maybe some people are still using a fax machine. Some people want paper reports. Some people want their own portal where they can download things. Now, how, how is that working? Is is a, a transition to a digital system going to make that more efficient and make that flow easier? You know, we have a pretty robust system for all of those things and see every variant that you describe. Most of ours are digitally connected, and so it's automatic downloads of reports through interfaces, but we certainly have every, every one of those. I'm not sure in our particular case that we see that it'll be easier, but it certainly fits well within what digital pathology will provide for us 
I think the biggest benefit for us will be the, the, the rapid moving about of cases to where I have excess capacity relative to a bottleneck somewhere else in the organization. And that ultimately, as you know, feeds into pleasing the patient and the client and getting results faster. And that's really what we're all about. Okay. So let's talk about the business case for digital pathology. You know, I think in the hype of the early 2000s, you know, we see kind of these features that get us excited, you know, oh, we'll be able to share cases with our friends down the hall or across the country. Oh, we won't need to walk slides back and forth from the storage room, or we won't need couriers driving all over town, or we won't need FedEx, you know, but what actually is the business case? What actually moves the needle in terms of financially making a difference and then perhaps getting efficiencies in the practice so we're ultimately better able to serve doctors and patients? Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly right. And I think that's where most people should spend the majority of their time. And that's where we did in order to decide whether it's a good fit or not. So I think all of those tools and the bells and whistles are real. I think they're helpful. I think they'll make a better product. I think they're enjoyable and stimulating. However, at the end of the day, we have to be able to justify the cost of, of the equipment. And so for us, we really looked at it on a few different levels. One, we for breast prognostic panel markers, we do a lot of those both for internal cases generated by our doctors at various hospitals and outpatient settings. And secondly, also from outside clients that are not ProPath doctors, but they use us as their technical vendor. And so we do a, a large number of those cases every day where we're doing ER, PR, HER2 markers on breast cases. And so there is a CPT code for a different billing for computer-assisted morphometric analysis. And, and that's been in place. It works well. It's paid. So for us, that was the easiest place to look and not look so much at efficiencies of doctors and those kind of things, which are also real. And that was a component of what we did. But that was real tangible. So we ran our numbers, looked at our payments based on traditional human reads of those versus the computer-assisted and came up with an ROI just on that use case. And that was number one. Secondly, we, as I mentioned, have a lot of clients that send to us as a technical vendor. Um, they send us cases to do immunohistochemical stains or other esoteric tests, and then we return the results to them. And for immunohistochemistry, we, we return slides to them for that doctor to read on his or her own. So this was another use case that we could see that uh, because we're making 500 immunostains a uh, or immunostain slides a day, and uh, so a number of those are going getting sent out. So we knew that if we could scan those, we could get those results in the form of digital images out to our clients faster. Um, they would be better pleased and uh, provide better service uh, because of the service we're providing them. And then we could reduce our shipping costs instead of worrying about overnight shipping and or courier runs, we could perhaps do ground shipment and, and reduce those logistics costs. So that was really the second use case and the, uh, the third, and those, those are both in place. One of something that came out of that is as we've developed this, we've had a lot of clients contact us and say, we hear you have now digital images. We were worried about people adopting it and being interested in doing it. We thought pathologists would be more in, inclined to say, now just send me the glass and get it to me quickly, but just send me the glass. But we've had a lot of people contact us now and say, we really want those digital images. And in fact, we've had some people that say they would rather use us for all of their cases rather than just the esoteric ones if we have digital images. So we see that as a real, uh, as a real benefit. Ultimately, 
we certainly see this and are using it now, but just beginning for primary reads in order to increase the efficiency of the doctors. So, you know, if I can, if you have 50 doctors like us and you get 5% more uh, efficiency or output from those doctors, it doesn't take very long where you're starting to alleviate the need for another FTE and those are bigger dollars and therefore bigger savings. So we really see that as a big, as a big plus. But even with the prognostic markers, that was about a two-year ROI for the one machine that we bought. This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by DJT Solutions, your single source for all your digital pathology requirements, from consultation services to system requirements, including installation, training, and life cycle support. Since 1995, DJT Solutions, we are your best choice for your best results. I think that's that's fantastic. I think that's a, what our listeners want to hear about, you know, because I think, you know, you gave us very tangible use cases, and I think that's ultimately what's going to move the needle and get people off the fence into into adopting this this mode of practice. And now, with respect to the, the first use case you mentioned, you know, I think personally, it's something I think pathology as a profession hasn't been great about. That is, I mean, it's. I think ultimately we're going to be able to better serve the patient with the use of image analysis in quantifying biomarkers. And, you know, so I think if we can make money in the process and better serve our customers, all the better. But I think, you know, pathology compared to radiology, you know, has been very sluggish or slow in generating new CPT codes, different revenue streams. You know, we have 88305, 88342, and then a code for image analysis, but not much else. So I think, you know, if we're able to create new codes and ultimately bill for these codes and better serve our patients and, you know, have some of that revenue stream come back to the profession of pathology, I think that's that's a win for everyone. So I think that's that's fantastic. I, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, it's you made the point very well. It is not a matter of greedy doctors, in this case, pathologists chasing after every dime in order to line their pockets. It's a matter of incenting us to take the leap to add additional technologies that ultimately get down to ProPath core, number one core value, our base core value being patient focused, making medical and scientific decisions to drive good business and never the other way around. So that's why we need these things. And that's why we do need the CPT codes to recognize the work and the investment that goes into this because there's no question computer assistance is going to be more reproducible for those types of things. It's just the nature of the beast. And I think we need to be incented to go after those things in order to provide better patient care. Right. Absolutely. And now speaking of the use cases, some other ones you were mentioning were consolidation and efficiencies. And so as you were first describing ProPath, I think it sounds like we're contemporaries. I you know, started practicing in the early 2000s, and I was actually at a large group practice called Ameripath. And, you know, when I saw that coming out of training, it seemed right around that time there was a massive shift, like in the in the 80s and 90s, pathology, you know, I think probably from an outsider seemed very inefficient. And maybe some people referred to it to, as the glory days, the golden era, where basically you would have, you know, <laughs> five to 10 pathologists sitting around at a community hospital working, I it seemed to me at, you know, not full capacity, right? So there was a lot of excess capacity sitting around waiting for frozen sections. You know, all the hospitals probably made their own histology preparations and their own slides in their own lab. 
And then it seemed like all of a sudden these large groups such as Aurora Diagnostics and Ameripath kind of came out of nowhere and consolidated this where you would take maybe the histology services of five to 10 labs and consolidate them into a single histo lab. And then you'd utilize this new technology called FedEx and couriers and you'd be driving around the, you know, the, the actual tissue samples, and then you'd be driving the slides and blocks back and forth. And I think a lot of efficiencies were squeezed out right around that era. And so first of all, is that accurate in terms of your recollection? And then secondly, how much room is there for us to squeeze out even more efficiencies along those lines with digital pathology? Yeah, I totally do think it's accurate. And, um, you know, I think both, I think several things, and you said we are contemporaries by the sounds of that, in that people tend to think that the end of the world is near uh, always in medicine. And uh, we've said that a number of times over the course of history. And then secondly, the, the golden era um, seems to move a little bit. But I completely agree with that. You know, I think there is, in, in our practice at least, and I think it would be applicable to others, I think there's no question that there are efficiencies waiting to be had. For us, what I see, particularly in a high-volume outpatient setting where the, most, where the majority of our revenue is generated, those fits and starts in slide production, which ultimately leads to slides being handed to a pathologist, that is where the killer is. There's certainly a limit to how many cases a doctor can read and read comfortably and be accurate, and, that's, and we never want to approach that. That is not our goal. However, if, if somebody has cases on their desk and they're ready to work through them and there's not a 45-minute gap after doing 12 cases before the next set comes in and then another 30 minutes and then everybody goes to lunch and then comes back and now transcription is overwhelmed because everybody came back and cases built up, those types of almost self-induced bottlenecks are the things that we really are striving to alleviate. So if we had continuous throughput of cases, not trying to go past that, not trying to fatigue them, I'd rather have everybody go home even earlier. But I'm convinced because of that, that we could have people go home earlier, yet do 10% more than they are now and feel better. And I think that's where we can get with the efficiencies with a smoother throughput. Be it, it's, a, it's a form of a factory. There's really no difference. And we want people doing cases when they're sharp and not wasting time and, um, and everybody will be happier. So I, I firmly believe we can get there. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, that's a wonderful message. I think, you know, when we talk about efficiencies and factories, you know, people kind of look at it as, you know, there's a winner and a loser, but it sounds like, you know, the model you're describing is everyone can win, right? The uh, administrators can win, the pathologists doing the work can win, and the doctors and patients can win as well. So I think that's, that sounds fantastic. Exactly. And now kind of bundled up in that discussion is this looming shortage of pathologists that we've been hearing about you know, I'm a little bit skeptical myself, but I guess, you know, the numbers don't lie and perhaps globally more so than in the United States. But I'd be curious to see, to hear what's your experience in terms of the pathologist uh, workforce? Have you ever had trouble getting pathologists? Are you concerned about a looming shortage in the upcoming years? And do you think digital pathology is going to help alleviate this problem? Yeah, I've, I've read the same studies as you have and talked to some of the authors of those studies. So I, ha I have to uh, believe it based on the numbers. So I, I do think it's real. I can't say that I've struggled tremendously for people to fill slots. Now, that said, it's probably worth clarifying that up until 
about three years ago, we did not typically post our positions for public consumption. We just ran our individual traps, places we trained, people we knew, and tried to make sure we had such a good reputation that when we called, people would listen and be eager to come work for us. And, you know, that, of course, a reputation is built on reality and and not fiction. So we wanted to make it a great place to work. And that worked. I mean, it really wasn't because of workforce, but more just a change in philosophy. We decided we would start posting our position. So I'm grateful that we did. That's our normal process now. And I have a feeling that's helped alleviate some potential there. As a pathologist in practice and anybody considering going into pathology, I think I think it's great news, frankly. If, if there's a shortage, it's a good place to be. You'll be in demand. And I think those places that can excel and provide an excellent place to work with an excellent group of colleagues and, and stimulating work, they'll have the ability to always recruit. And that, that's what we really have been focusing on, having a culture and a, and a, a place of work that is that, that people will seek. Um, and I think then, related to digital pathology, I think that's part of that that picture. Certainly, we need to be efficient in order to serve this aging population and shortage of pathologists that you described. I think that's a component. I think it gives us the opportunity to help the underserved, be that anywhere here in the United States. Easy to overlook the U.S. when you talk about underserved and think about faraway lands, but they're right here in our backyard, as well as other lands where they have even fewer pathologists and perhaps lesser training than what we get. So I think it's a huge win for everybody. I think it's a huge win for for humans in general and not to make it too grandiose, but I really do think digital pathology will help solve a lot of those things. Okay. And then maybe the flip side to that, will the human component, do you foresee ever become less necessary as we get machine learning and artificial intelligence-based systems and squeeze out further efficiencies, you know, will humans, the human pathologist become less necessary or transform into perhaps a different role? You know, I'm, I don't think so. No. And, and I am certainly not, uh, as I say, uh, a super technical person or, or uh, an engineer, but I have heard a number of people talk about this, talk about the data crunching and the numbers and the math that goes into teaching AI and to get to the level that pathologists have in general, I don't see that happening. I do see huge opportunities for AI, and we're involved in a number of projects along this line with uh, outside vendors and outside partners, that AI will, in fact, help extend pathologists even further. So going back to that pathologist shortage, um, rather than be fearful that our jobs will go away, I think we should embrace it and extend what is, a sh- what is and will be a shortage so that we can continue to serve. And there will be other things then for pathologists to do. Pathologists simply need to be able to um, keep an open mind and stay uh, abreast of everything because they'll be the ones running those things. But I don't see any time anytime soon where actually we'll just have computers and, and uh, images being fed into them without human intervention. I really don't. I, I joke about going back to, uh, it was 2000 actually, and I hosted a, uh, an event, for, moderated an event for the CAP that um, we colloquially called fish and chips. And it was about fish and microchip arrays. And really, if you'd have left that session with some very smart people, um, I left that session as a young pathologist thinking, wow, maybe uh, maybe I won't have a job. They're just going to grind up tissue and put it in these microchip arrays and out comes the answer. And 20 years later, I don't think anybody is fearful of that, but they're very useful tools. They're very good tools. So I think we're here for the long haul. There will need to be humans uh, between there or on top of that. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I remember. I remember those days, and I think you know there was they used to call it the bind and grind assays or something to that mm. effect, you know. And then the argument was, well, well, you're still going to need a pathologist to look in the microscope to circle the area of the tumor, <laughs> <laughs> right? You're at least going to yeah. need that. But now what I'm seeing is almost a second, I know a, a second coming or a renaissance in H and E morphology, with coupled with our ability to perform Im- image analysis and then being assisted by artificial intelligence, which I don't think anyone ever saw on the horizon. What are, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I, I totally agree. Certainly AI was never in the picture, but I think it does put a premium, maybe as counterintuitive as that sounds, I think it puts a premium on an excellent morphologist. And I would, I would use hematopathology as an example there, and maybe you've seen this as well. We, you know, with the, tool, with the molecular tools, the fish, cytogenetics, flow cytometry, one might think that one could take a bone marrow biopsy and um, separate it out into those various tests and come back with an answer. And frankly, there are physicians, both pathologists and oncologists and others out there that think that's what you can do. But I think those in practice know that that's not the case, that there's a tremendous amount of morphologic interpretation and the strongest and best hematopathologists are the strongest morphologists that then understand and can piece together these other ancillary tools to come back with a cogent diagnosis. So I think there's, a, I think there's an illustration of, of a similar phenomenon, and I think that'll be the case moving forward. Right. Absolutely. Now, you talked about AI tools or applications, and you've been looking at some. So, And I think we're very in very early stages, uh, clearly, but there's no shortage of hype surrounding artificial intelligence. And, you know, I've also found it means different things to different people. It's not necessarily just a robot that's going to spit out the answers, but probably more realistically, it's something that at least at first will help us in our workflows, right? Maybe being able to triage cases to recognize, you know, which cases should go to which pathologist and so on. So specifically, you know, what do you see in the very short term in terms of applications for AI? And then how do you see that evolving? Yeah, and, you know, for fear of getting out of my lane, I will try very hard to stay in my lane. But our experience, um, I, think there's, I think there's a very bright future for AI. Obviously, there are a number of companies and private equity firms and venture capital firms that believe that as well, based on the amount of investments that have gone into those types of companies. So I think it's definitely there and real, and I think it'll be a huge benefit. I see first huge opportunity in research and furthering knowledge that will then result in clinical application, which happens all the time in medicine, right? So as an example, I'm a GI and liver pathologist, and so you think of some things in GI and even liver, and I, I know that with the assistance of AI, they can pick up on some cues that maybe the human eye cannot, that we can certainly piece patterns together and put the story together with the clinical history, which is very necessary often in GI and liver. But what if there's a way to really see cutoffs of numbers of cells, for instance, maybe numbers of plasma cells or precise location or numbers of intraepithelial lymphocytes that give you a clue as to, you know, you name the diagnosis. They give you a clue it's going to be uh, resistant celiac disease or not, those types of things. So I think that there's, and we're involved in some studies that I think are going to be really exciting and academically interesting, but all of those exciting and academically interesting things ultimately lead to clinical breakthroughs and benefits. So I think that's where it'll start and then it'll continue to move into clinical medicine quickly. 
Right. I think the low hanging fruit, you know, I think triage is going to be a big area, but then also just, you know, not because machine learning or AI systems are smarter than people or better at doing things, but, you know, they're perhaps better at doing more repetitive tasks or quantifying things more precisely or, you know, looking for the needle in the haystack. So I think they're just maybe differently abled and can really assist people in, in doing some of these, you know, tedious tasks, so to speak, and I, which is, I think, going to lead to big gains down the road. Now, speaking of, you know, various tasks, you have a, a multi-specialty group, you said. So before we wrap up, maybe could you give some insight as to how going digital has affected individually your pathologists, you know, what their reactions were, you know, are, I'm sure you have even among your group laggards and early adopters and, and so on. So was there enthusiasm or resistance? And then secondly, how does it relate to the different subspecialties, you know, because looking at prostate biopsies is something completely different than hematopathology or, you know, looking for, you know, eosinophils in a stomach biopsy, right? We're doing various different things. So how does digital pathology lend itself, you know, to each of these various practice settings that the pathologists are, are doing? Yeah, you, you make a great point. We've had a, a mixed bag. We certainly have people that are really eager to adopt it and to implement it and believe in it. We've had others that are much more reticent there, and then a crew in between. They want to see the digital image, but then they want to make sure they have the glass to follow it up just to make sure, quote unquote. And um, so it's interesting to, to follow. I've talked to a, a colleague who has a completely digital practice. I say that in that they scan every single slide. There are some doctors that are still on a scope, but he maintains that you have to take away the microscope if you really want people to adopt digital pathology. Otherwise, they'll, they'll rely on that. So we're, we're not to that point yet, but we will be. The apprehensions that I hear are high-throughput subspecialties like dermatopathology and even GI pathology. Can I be as quick in a high-throughput setting with a digital image as I am with glass? And um, that, that will be pushed and tested for sure for the way we plan to use it. We don't need to get that answer right away because right now, if I'm uh, bringing those cases up a flight of stairs as opposed to driving them somewhere, I'm much more pressed to get them digitized and sent that way if I'm driving. So we'll see how that plays out. And, and I, the other thing I'd say is I've not seen a correlation with age. So you might think that the uh, long in the tooth pathologists are the ones that are most reticent about using a digital image. I've not seen that. And you might think that the young ones are ready to embrace it and get rid of the scope. I, I've not seen that uniform breakdown. It's been a mixed bag both ways. But I think our um, somewhere in between those real high throughput specialties is where our sweet spot will be. And then a challenge, I think, remains some bigger resection specimens. And that may be more of a mental block than it is a functional one in that they, I've had people comment that they're concerned about scanning an entire slide and an entire tissue region when it's a larger resection as opposed to a biopsy. Right, right. Yeah, I've, I've certainly heard that as well, that it's maybe not what you would expect, that the old timers are not reluctant to ditch path and the, uh, you know, the, the young guns are not as eager necessarily as you might think. And, you know, it probably has to do with personal preferences and underlying philosophies and, and so forth. So, Corey Roberts, thank you so much for being with us. Now, before we wrap up, just tell us what, what excites you about the field and where do you see things going in the next 10 years? Yeah, I think this is a huge opportunity for everybody. I, I think this in the next 10 years, I think you'll see lots and lots of people doing digital pathology, and I hope 
the price point on the capital equipment comes down enough that a three and four person group can see the benefits of it. And it's not just going to be the larger groups and academic centers, but I'll be very surprised if in 10 years the, that we're not reading all or nearly all of our cases digitally and find ourselves more efficient than ever. Oh, that's wonderful. Our guest has been Dr. Corey Roberts from ProPath. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.